Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast where we explore personal stories and interesting facets of assisted reproductive technology. And that includes areas where you think, oh, that doesn't sound very interesting, like insurance. But then you listen to the podcast and you're like, well, actually, it can be really interesting. And that is our goal, especially today. I'm Ellen Trackman. I'm an attorney specialized in assisted reproductive technology law. Um, I'm the managing attorney at Trackman Law Center. And I write a weekly blog on assisted reproductive technology law for the website abovethelaw.com. And I have the honor of co-hosting this and working as well um, with Jennifer White, my sister. Hi. Um, I, on the other hand, think that insurance is awesome and fascinating. And I actually really enjoy reading insurance documents. Um, I'm also... Also a total weirdo, obviously. So, um, but yes, I am Jennifer White, and I am the um, co-owner and director of Colorado Surrogacy, which is a surrogacy matching agency in Colorado. And um, I have the distinct pleasure of actually, I, I feel like Sarah Page, who we are interviewing today, is a friend. She is a, a really great person. She equally loves insurance. Um, <laughs> so we have oh, much, much in common. That's exactly right. Um, she's also just a, a really great person. I, I know we'll let her introduce herself. But on top of that, just a fun tidbit is that she teaches dance classes. So before we get to the interview, I would like to encourage anybody who has any comments, anything to say, who would like to you know, just be in a future episode of our podcast to give us a call on our voicemail line, which is 303-997-1903. And we will hopefully be able to play you on our podcast in the future. So we're looking forward to hearing people there. But without further ado, we would really, really love to dive in with Sarah and hear what she has to say. Welcome, Sarah Page from Art Risk Financial Insurance Solutions. Long name. We just call it Art Risk or Art Risk <laughs> Solutions. Um, Sarah is one of the only people I know in the entire world who can make insurance actually interesting. So we are honored here to have you and to hear about insurance in an interesting way. And it is, of course, a very big and important issue when it comes to assisted reproductive technology. Sarah, do you want to introduce yourself? I would love to. Um, so first of all, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here to discuss the wonderful world of insurance and hopefully make it a little more interesting. Um, I have been working for Art Risk Solutions for seven years, and and we are a brokerage firm that specializes in the assisted reproductive technology field. And hopefully our goal is to make sure that we minimize the risk as much as possible um, for intended parents and surrogates throughout their journey. Right. Um, and insurance comes in so many different forms and so many different parts of the journey. Do you, before we kind of just like jump into some of these crazy stories involving insurance, do you kind of want to just like give a an overview of like the different parts of where insurance plays in? I mean, I know when I think of a gestational carrier arrangement, I think of insurance in like three parts that so there's like during the pregnancy and the baby and wait, life, I forget. I, I had three parts at some point, but 
You, you do the over, you're the expert. Yeah, no, I, I love it. So, um, so our, our whole thing is to try and cover kind of from the beginning of the contracts through again, the postpartum, um, we all, you know, there's life insurance that needs to be of course placed for the, for the gestational carrier. You have their medical insurance that needs to be placed for them. And then we also offer ancillary insurances to, for things that maybe a lot of people don't think about such as, um, if there was a loss of reproductive organs or if they were to go go onto bed rest and they're working short-term disability, or if they had something where they, after the delivery, there was, with the loss of reproductive organs, there was maybe some other long-term disability, those types of things that, that are inside of a contract that perhaps not everybody realizes, yes, there is insurance that can be placed to help with the coverage of those potential contractual obligations. Right. So if you have to go through an egg donation arrangement or a surrogacy arrangement, how often is there insurance that covers that kind of that procedure? Like how often do they have employment insurance, their employer that helps with IVF? Because I I think it's really, really low. That's like Facebook and Google and Right, right. So, and it is, there's a lot of them, you know, there's only nine states that offer infertility coverage as part of like an individual policy. Do you know and those nine? Have, off, do you know those nine off the top of your off head? Off the top of my head? <laughs> I don't. Um, <laughs> I know that, I know, uh, I know that California has some offerage. Illinois does, Texas does. Um, those are the kind of the top three that I do know. I wish I knew the nine. Um, but the the biggest ones are the self-funded policies, which you, like you said, the Google, the Amazon, Starbucks, things like that, where they do offer infertility coverage for more of the process of collecting eggs and getting embryos. And then once they hit the gestational carrier side of things, that's where a lot of them don't offer that. Sometimes they'll help pay for program benefits, but they actually don't cover the medical insurance side or the medical expense side of that gestational carrier. And so that's kind of what we have to look at then is what does the gestational carrier's insurance potentially cover, or is there another insurance that we can get to help cover those medical expenses for the gestational carrier? And how would you say, how often does her, the gestational carrier, the surrogate, how often does her insurance cover her medical costs for the pregnancy and the delivery? Is that common still or is it less common? So it, it's actually more common than it was probably about five, six years ago. More of oh, interesting. the- Yeah, more- I thought it would have gone down. You know, and, and everyone kind of believes that as well, but what's happening is that the language is getting cleared up. So beforehand, there was a lot of ambiguity surrounding whether they would cover or not. And as, as this is becoming um, more well-known and more people are participating in the surrogacy industry or, or being a gestational carrier- the employers are being asked these questions and therefore they are cleaning up their language. And what we're finding is that a lot of the employers are in kind of this quandary of, well, if we don't cover it, is it discrimination? But if we do cover it, it is maternity and they have to have care. So we're seeing that actually a lot of them are covering where we're not seeing coverage from them is if it's a health and welfare plan or they're part of a union or if it is a religious-based insurance policy um, through the you know Catholic DSCs or Christian ministries um, or a, a hospital system that is faith based as well, we see a lot of those are not covering. So I I just I also from my experience the federal government tends to not cover as well. Is that is that what you see as well? 
So yeah, the federal government is actually a very interesting piece of the puzzle because in their policy booklet, there is no exclusion for surrogacy. And if you call them and talk to, you know, it's typically a federal blue, you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield policy, but if you call them and talk to them, they say, well, yes, we'll cover it. And then if you ask them, if you delve deeper and you ask them, can you please look up Z33.3, which is a surrogacy code, then they they look at it and they say, oh, wait, that's a non-covered service. And then they tell you, oh, but you could resubmit the claims. Well, then you're asking a provider to take off that coding, which not every provider will do. So our history with it prior to 2017 was that it was fine to be used because that coding wasn't involved. Now that the coding is involved, it's it's kind of a use at your own risk type situation because even though, yes, there's no out and out exclusion, if that code is used, it will be considered an uncovered service. And by coding, you mean like when she goes to her doctor, he's like writing on his what the code right right so there yeah exactly so there's um cpt codes and icd-10 codes and there's like (laughs) seventy thousand different codes for different various things yeah (laughs) yeah no idea what this i mean i liked it when it was twenty thousand. when it jumped to seventy thousand. i wasn't too excited um because it just delved a lot deeper into all different types of things, but they did add a code into the ICD-10 coding that was gestational carrier. Right. So that when that edit got added in, we kind of had to call the insurance companies and say, "Hey, so when you when you have this code on something, what is it going to come up as? Non-covered, covered, or is this not even a part of your system?" So that was an interesting twist of events at that point in time. Yeah, I've seen I've seen that a lot personally. That people go, "Well, last time it was covered," and I say, "Yeah, but the codes have changed." You you're taking a huge risk if you think that you're, you're going to get away with it again. Right. And that's the hard thing is that, the, you know, every year is different. And that's sometimes what people don't understand is that even though it covered two years ago, or even if it covered last year, there is no guarantee it's going to cover this year because you're only bound by a contractual length of time. And once that contract ends, they can take anything and use anything or change anything that they want to. So a lot of times you're like, oh, well, I used it five years ago and it was perfectly fine. And they're like, well, things have changed. <laughs> so we might want to take a look at it again. Well, and then there's insurance policies that are kind of this middle ground where it's not coverage or no coverage, but they have like a lien. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and liens are liens are a little bit sticky because they it really depends on how that language is worded. Are is the lien against the entire pregnancy, um, which of course would not be in any shape or form an ideal situation because that's all medical expenses is the lien against the surrogate's compensation. So if she's making 30000 35000 um, they'll ask for medical expenses up to the amount that she has made, which it caps the amount. So at least you know, um, you know, you know what your expenditures are going to be, and it's not going to vary from that. But in, in terms of traditional insurance, that is a little bit on the more expensive side, 35000 40000 And again, it's based on her compensation. Right. Um, when they look at her compensation, are they also considering like her maternity clothes allowance and her monthly? Yeah, so that is one of the really nice things that it is true compensation. So it's not reimbursement. Maternity clothes or if they um, get a babysitter for the day because they have to go to an appointment, those are all considered reimbursable items. So that's not it. Uh, it's, 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 it is pure compensation. So it would be her base compensation 
plus any other fees that she might get. So if it's a multiple uh, pregnancy, the additional amount for that. If it's a cesarean section, the additional amount for that. So then they'll look at the entire compensation and create the lien around that compensation. Great. Just before we lose anyone, I mean, I find this interesting. Let's talk about some of your really interesting cases. Um, what is like the first most interesting case that comes to mind dealing with insurance? So I think, you know, I, I, have, a, I have a couple. I think one of my, my most interesting cases um, surrounds the use of Medicaid. And pretty much the, the Medicaid system, the, the policy booklets, if there is a policy booklet, are really vague. And so that we have a lot of people who in the industry say, well, the policy doesn't say anything, so we're going to go ahead and use her Medicaid. And there's a whole different, you know, ethical aspect of that, of whether or not to use state slash government funds for a surrogacy, but we won't get into that part of it. We'll just get into the insurance part of it. Um, but basically what happened was that we had a surrogate who delivered and she they were using her Medicaid and it was in the state of Ohio. And with her, with her Medicaid, and the bills were, unfortunately, she had some issues. And so she actually was in ICU for a little bit and needed some blood transfusions. And so at the end of the day, the bills ended up being right around the $250,000 mark. And Medicaid at the time was, they hadn't submitted anything to it. But again, the, con, the Medicaid contract had been reviewed and nothing was found to not cover surrogacy. Um, the unfortunate thing was, is that they did come back and ask for the funds. And when they came back and asked for those funds and it was the full 250,000, what happened at that point in time was that they were like, well, you know, why, why there's nothing in the policy booklet. They tried to fight it. Well, what had ended up happening was that the, the Medicaid law inside of that state of Ohio specifically lists that any surrogate services are not covered. So that's what the actual law said. But when you looked at the policy booklet, the policy booklet didn't say anything. So that's something, you know, that any person that looking at a policy booklet would like, oh, well, it, there's nothing there. It's si what we consider silent, which means there's no language, good or bad, surrounding it and therefore should be covered if there's no exclusion. But you have to understand, anytime you're working with those government policies, you're going to have to go back to what the law states. And that's going to rule over anything that policy booklet states. And so at that point in time, the bills did get taken away from Medicaid, did get put back in the hands of the intended parent, and the intended parent actually did file bankruptcy because they couldn't, and it was a, excuse me, it was a, it was a domestic client because they couldn't afford those bills. And so it's just one of those things where, you know, it's very important that when you're dealing with insurance that you do get hooked up with somebody who understands insurance and understands the different levels of it, that you can't just look on the surface level of insurance. You do need to dig further and find out what, you know, are there any internal documents for things? What is the law state in that state? So again, not just a policy booklet, but truly understanding within that state, what is legal, what is not, and where else to look to get a con you know, conclusive answer before you use an insurance policy. And was Medicaid clear about coming after the intended parents, not the gestational carrier? <clears throat> no, originally it was a gestational carrier. And what had to happen is we had to submit the contract to the hospital because Medicaid just rescinded everything. And they didn't. And at that point in time, what happens is that the hospital actually has to pay back Medicaid. So the hospital paid back Medicaid, and then the hospital then goes after whomever is financially responsible. And when the gestational carrier registers at the hospital, they typically have them sign a, financial, a patient financial responsibility form saying that they're responsible. 
which we never say not to sign them. You should sign them. But then you need to you do like we had to present the contract. We had to get the bills out of her name into the intended parent name. And, and the intended parents luckily were extremely cooperative during this entire process. Um, understanding, you know, that unfortunately it was kind of onto their fault of not, um, they actually didn't have the insurance policy reviewed. They just looked at it. And so I took on the responsibility of not, not knowing, unfortunately. Yeah. I, ha- I have to also ask, do they have an agency? They didn't. They were independent, which we have found that that does make a huge difference. And, and it's so hard because I know that some people come into this journey thinking I'm going, I need to save money wherever I can. And so they choose to do this on their own. But there's so much that agencies know. And there's so many people that agencies can put them in contact with that are good, honest people in the industry that when an intended parent comes on this doing an independent journey, um, there's a lot of questions that they don't ask, and there's a lot of people that they don't know that they need to get in touch with or things that they don't know to ask. And so it ends up creating a lot of issues just because of lack of knowledge uh, on how to how this whole entire process works. And and blogs are great, but but blogs are also, you know, people's experiences versus professionals in the industry who have managed it. I think it's very different when someone manages something versus somebody just going through it. Yeah, and we say that all the time. You don't know what you don't know. It's true. It is so true. And that's, and that's something that's hard. And we, we hope that, you know, an independent can come talk to us and we can kind of walk them through some of the basics. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not an agency and I, I commend anyone who owns an agency as it is, you know, you are married to people for 24 months and that is, you are, you are in it to win it at that point in time with, with your, with your clients. So we do try and guide them a little bit on if you're going to do this alone, these are the kind of things you need to look out for. And these are the questions you need to talk to your lawyer about, because that's what we find is that a lot of it gets lost in the contract phase. And that's, you know, they don't hook up maybe with the, um, the most thorough lawyer, or they don't hook up with a lawyer who actually is well-versed in, in those his reproductive technology field. And they're using a friend's buddy, or, you know, we had somebody who's like, well, he's a contract lawyer. Okay. Well, that, that's not, <laughs> I mean, believe me, my, my, my stepdad's a lawyer and I've dealt with him my entire life. That's, that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> I will ask him questions about something. He's like, I does just cause I'm a lawyer. doesn't mean I know all legal aspects of everything, which is so true. You, it's, you need right. to be, in my opinion, with an assistive reproductive technology lawyer, someone who's well-versed in the field, who understands your state laws, what you can and can't do. So, so even if you have an atto- uh, attorney who knew what they were doing and all that stuff, what happens? I mean, have you had situations where insurance companies have just changed their policies? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. We had, um, you know, we had one where it was a group employer policy, not self-funded. It was a large group, and she was in the middle of a pregnancy, and the employer, the employer policy decided to be self-funded, which means that the employer then takes on the payment of all the medical expenses versus the actual insurance company. There's some tax benefits to that. You create a welfare trust. You can funnel your money in other ways. There's a lot of good things when, when an employer becomes, um, I guess, uh, you know, 500 plus employees at that time. And when that happened, they put in a surrogacy exclusion into the policy that she was on. And again, middle of the pregnancy. So at that point in time, we had to start writing letters to the human resource department because 
the insurance company no longer has the jurisdiction to say yes or no. So we have to take them out of the mix and we have to go then directly to the company that's employing her and that is actually responsible for paying the medical expenses. And we have to discuss that with them and write letters to them and explain the situation. And And this employer was adamant about keeping this exclusion in and that, and you know, then for their first stance was, well, it, that, sorry, <laughs> you know, we, we took over the policy and this is our stance and we're not going to change anything. And this was a situation where um, she was actually a teacher. And so she had worked for the school district for 12 years. And so we came back and said, look, she's, you know, she has given her time <laughs> and her, and her efforts. And she has educated so many children and given so much to your school district. Can we finish off this pregnancy? <laughs> um, can, can you, can you handle this? And so they actually ended up conceding and saying, yes, we will go ahead and pay for the remainder of this pregnancy, but any further surrogacy journeys will not be covered and this exclusion will stand. So that was a case where, I mean, I was, I was shocked, to be perfectly honest, because it just doesn't happen very often. But I was so thankful that it did. And, and it was a group effort. I mean, we had we were involved, the agency was involved, intended parents were involved, surrogate was involved to try and get them to change their minds. Um, you know, in the middle of a journey, no one wants to hear all of a sudden, oh my gosh, sorry, you have no insurance at this time. So, you know, she did have a backup policy, which was nice. Um, in case anything did happen, she would have still been covered. But of course, it's better that her company continued the coverage. So it was it all it was a good it was a good ending to to, to not a great situation. And that's just the reality for anyone, right? That your insurance can change at is it at any time or just like when that one year contract ends at that at that point it can change to anything. So it depends on the type of insurance. If it's a if it's a, an employer sponsored policy, it can change at any point in time. They don't have oh, to give notice. That's, that's um, scary. It is scary. And so a lot of times people say, oh, but my, my employer said it would cover. And my response to them is say, right, right now. Sure. <laughs> it, it will. Right. Too bad pregnancy lasts a long time. <laughs> right. Right. But we, we've got 10 months we need to worry about here. Um, so one of our, you know, so in, in that case, an employer sponsored policy, they can change at any point in time. Now, if you're inside of a large group policy that the insurance company is paying for and the large group is just you know, accessing the insurance or it's a, an ACA type policy or an individual or small group, those have contract periods. And so as long as you're inside that contract period, nothing's going to change. Now it used to be pre ACA was that you, you, as long as you still paid for the policy, that policy continued and continued to roll. And so you could have that contract for 10 years. And in the contract would change. Well, come ACA time period, that changed. Now a contract period is from January 1st through December 31st, and your coverages are only guaranteed for that year period, and that's it. And then after that, whatever changes in the contract may happen, or if the insurance carrier no longer offers insurance in your area, then you are looking for another insurance to start that new contract year period on January 1st. And of course, that becomes a problem if someone is in the middle of a pregnancy. Because I was going to say, have you had that happen oh my before? <laughs> yes. And, and this, yeah. this year, honestly, was a complete crazy, crazy nightmare. We had, um, we had several insurance carriers, large insurance carriers, Anthem pulled out, Aetna pulled out of a lot of markets, Cigna pulled out of a lot of markets. And when you have people on those policies 
who now have to be told, hey, by the way, we have to switch your insurance, and sorry, this is a completely different network, and you're going to have to also switch your doctor and hospital. That is a very tough thing to say to somebody who has either a relationship with it or someone who's in the middle of their pregnancy. And so we did. We dealt with that a lot a lot this year, more than we've ever dealt with. Um, we had to file, you know, usually we file five to six grievances, um, at the start of the year and a grievance just says, Hey, she was seeing this doctor. Will you please allow her to continue to see it? Or, you know, um, or she wanted to go to this hospital, but now it's out of network. Will you allow this? And this year we actually, we filed over 70 grievances this year to get people to be able to see their doctors who they were seeing or to have access to the hospital that they previously had access to. How often are those granted? So we have to be careful how we do them. Um, if they, are in their second or third trimester, they usually get granted. If they're in their first trimester, they will never get granted. So we were very open with people and, and told them, look, you know, first trimester, she's barely seeing the OB, please have her switch. And the agencies were really, really great that we work with because they, they helped have that conversation with them as well. And then we worked on finding a good doctor. Um, the ones that we did have to file the grievances for, every single one was approved but one. And the one that wasn't approved, she this isn't a good thing, but she ended up having a complication and being into getting put into the hospital. Well, the hospital that she wanted to go to was the closest one to her for this complication. And so now it's being approved because of an access to care. So so luckily, like that, <laughs> not, mean, not very lucky. We never wish, we, right, right. We never wish things like that, but we're we're glad that the that there was another thing that we could file to then have her have access to that. Um, so, I mean, that's a good what if, thing. What if there are no other options? Have there been situations like that? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, what happened was um, <clears throat> one of the one of the hard things is that in Pennsylvania, it's very specific and and same thing with with Colorado as well you have different counties that are covered by a certain insurance and if you're in that county you can only get insurance by maybe one or two carriers and it's it's that way for Ohio and Missouri and um, like I said, Colorado, as well as Arizona and Pennsylvania. And we have a lot of, a lot of gestational carriers in, in those states. And so what was happening was that we, one of the major ball players pulled out of the market and we had girls who were in the middle of their journeys with no insurance. And so they did have to then purchase into a primary policy through Universal. Um, we, we specifically work with Universal, but basically it's a, it's a Lloyd's of London specialty insurance policy that they then had to get. And the, and one of the unfortunate things is that with the Lloyd's policy, it doesn't matter where you are in the journey. The cost is the cost. And so we had people who they only had 14 weeks left of their journey and they had already paid for the, and then, you know, the, the previous ACA policy for the rest of the months. And now all of a sudden they have to pay the full price again, regardless of the situation, because otherwise she'd have no insurance. That, that is a difficult conversation to have with an intended parent who was not expecting to pay an additional $25,000, that, you know, but the reality is, is that again, you're in a contract and that contract, when it ends, I can't guarantee what's going to happen. Yeah. So if you finish the pregnancy, everything's paid for regardless of, you know, unclear language. 
then you're you're good. You're you're all clear. You don't need to worry for the next couple of years, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I love the lead in Ellen. That was really good. <laughs> so, so the insurance companies have jurisdictions, and the jurisdiction is that they have up to two years to review their claims and determine whether or not they're going to still cover those claims. Um, and so we are we are currently working on a case where it was almost, it was actually a year and a half ago that the delivery happened and and the pregnancy happened and the insurance company now has come back and stated, well, this exclusion we're saying applies to her. So we're going to actually rescind everything that we have covered at this time. And right now it's sitting at about $130,000. So yeah. (laughs) Um, Now, and, and then there are, I mean, Luckily, you, again, work with somebody who can verify the insurance, make sure they understand what they're doing, and so that they can go fight it for you, which is exactly what we're doing at this point in time. Um, It's with an insurance carrier that we had a lot of issues with, but that, at the end of the day, covered. And so we are actively working on filing grievances, and this will probably go to the Department of Insurance um, because of a couple documents that they have that are actually in support of covering, but they do have two years to come back and say, you know, per our policy language, we are not going to cover this. So just because the journey is done does not, and the the insurance company is covered, you're not out of the woods. You really do have to wait for that jurisdiction to end where they can come back. And that's one of the things, one of the reasons that we've been asking agencies and escrow companies to please keep the escrow open up to two years. Two years? Mm -hmm. Wow, that's a long time. It's a very long time. At the same time, a surrogate should not be left with medical expenses because the trust account was closed. So, you know, that's a hard thing. Of course, that's a hard conversation to have with an intended parent. Right. But for two years, that could be a huge amount of money. So you're, you're, you're saying that 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 escrow should have a large amount of money for two years. I mean, I, if they deny it. Right. I think there needs to be something left in there, whether, you know, 10,000, 15,000. And I understand that's still a large amount of money. It's just when you get to the point with insurance companies where they come back and they, or, you know, they say, Oh, sorry, this wasn't covered. Or we have hospitals will say, well, this never got covered. And you say, well, we can submit to my insurance company. And they're saying, Oh, sorry, we were supposed to submit claims within, 60, you know, 60 days and it's been two years and now the claim's not going to be accepted by the insurance company. So, you know, if you, if you have everything signed off on, then I feel more comfortable with that in terms of, you know, especially with the provider saying, okay, everything's at a zero balance before you close out accounts, but the, but then you're still left with the insurance company um, and the issues with that. Now it doesn't, it honestly doesn't happen very often. This is, I mean, we, we work with, well over 2000 different surrogacy journeys a year. So and we're dealing with one or two that are coming through saying we're not going to cover. It's, it's a low percentage of, of actually having to do this, but it does happen. Um, and so our fear is, you know, what happens if it is truly denied and you now have intended parents that you didn't know that they potentially would owe money. Trust accounts are closed. How do you get the money to people? How do you contact the intended parent again two years later? Uh, and and so that's some, a whole yeah. another podcast all by itself would be talk about TRICARE and its ability to come back, you know, <laughs> forever and ever. Amen. Later. Don't use yeah. it. Don't ever use yeah. it. Oh, yeah. That's, that's longer than the two yeah. years. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. There's no jurisdiction. So I feel like our TRICARE yeah. podcast could be really short. Sure. We could just say, don't do it. <laughs> just don't okay, do never it. Never mind. Not a done episode. All done. Oh. <laughs> 
It's okay. So intended parents can't sleep the first two years anyway because they have a, a baby, but also just worrying about insurance the whole right. time. Right, and then helpfully, like I said, a lot of the a lot of the issues that we come across where we get involved is when the pre-checks haven't been done. Um, and so I, I can't stress enough how important it is to make sure that before anyone enters into a journey that they understand what that insurance looks like for that gestational carrier. Either they've talked to the insurance company, they've talked to the employer, they've hired somebody to do it, an attorney has looked at it. It, it makes a world of difference to understand what your risk is going into something than to be blindsided with it at the very end of a journey or in the middle of a journey. That is, those are horrible conversations to have with intended parents or like, I didn't know. And you're like, I'm, I'm sorry. If this is how it was at the beginning of the journey, I'm sorry, you weren't informed. That, that's not a hard, that's, that is a hard conversation to have. And I don't, hopefully intended parents don't have to deal with that a lot. You know, when they hook up with good, again, good attorneys, good agencies, I, you know, it's hard enough when you speak the same language. I can imagine when you're dealing with international, it becomes 10 times worse. Do you, do you have any good international stories? <laughs> <laughs> you know, my international stories have to do with babies um, because that is the one thing that is typically glossed over by, uh, unfortunately, by a lot of agencies because the the reality of what it is is that it's it's not fun. It's expensive for newborns. And... What we've been seeing is that there was um, there was this thought process that you could get Obamacare insurance, and then there's still a thought process surrounding it. And I'm really not, you know, there's gray areas, and I'm I'm not an attorney, and I know a lot of a lot of the attorneys live in the gray the gray matter. Um, but for me, I, I my job is very black and white with insurance, and so when I look at the law, the the newborns you have to you have to be a resident of the United States, and a child's residency does go back to the parent. And so what was happening with the international side of things is that they were looking at the first part of it, which was that you have to be, you have to be able to legally reside here. Well, anyone who has um, a, you know, citizenship here can legally reside here and that's perfectly fine. And the, and the child can, but a child also cannot purchase its own policy. It doesn't, it doesn't have the right to do so. It can't sign its own signature. And so then all of those requirements then are not are off of the child and go back to the intended parent or, or whomever is legally responsible for the child. And so what was happening was that these they were coming over and getting the Obamacare insurance and and 95% of the time it worked because there was no the insurance companies had nothing set up um, in terms of checks and balances to be able to make sure that 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 they were following what the law had stated. Well, the insurance companies got very keen on what was going on and started to put in language specifically regarding um, newborns born to parents outside of the United States, parents who did not have residency inside the United States. They started putting language into the physical policy saying, "This you can't, you can't do this. The child can't be covered because you're not a resident yourself. Um, and also they started asking for proof of residency and, and not one proof, not a lease agreement, but a mortgage, a driver's license, um, asking for if they had other children, asking for the school registration for the children, asking for the county taxes, the state taxes, um, you know, pay stubs, basically things that if you lived here and you were a resident here, you have no issues providing. But if you're not, it's a problem. And so what was happening was that these medical expenses that they were thinking were going to be covered by this Obamacare insurance, which you could get covered for maybe 
seven to $8,000, all of a sudden that wasn't an option anymore. And they were in the middle of a pregnancy or they'd already delivered and they had these bills. And now we're looking at $150,000, dollars $300,000 bills that they have no insurance for. And like right now I'm dealing with a case where the, the total outcome of the insurance, I just got it yesterday, um, was $446,000 for twins. That is, that is at the end of the day, that is what it's going to cost. And they were, I mean, they were born at 32 weeks. They were not born in the twenties. They did not have a whole lot that needed to be done, but they were little and they need care. And, and it is expensive when it, when they go into the NICU, it's, it's approximately six to $7,000 per day per baby when they are in the NICU. And, you know, we're going in and we're negotiating the bills. And, and right now with our negotiations, we're looking at about 262,000, but that's 262,000. I mean, at that point in time, might as well be a million. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's a, that's a lot of money. And so, yes. Yeah, so for internationals, the issue typically isn't with the conversation surrounding the maternity. It truly is the newborns and not having that conversation with them regarding singleton versus twins and what medically that looks like and financially that looks like for them prior to their transfers. I mean, that... Yeah. We have a lot of intended parents who have said, well, I would have made a different decision. And that is hard to hear when they didn't have the knowledge to be able to, to make an informed decision for themselves, for their journey, for their, for their family. I think it's so common to hear intended parents think that they want more than one child so that twins is the way to go. That, that you know, two for one, that's a, that's a good way to save money. But that just really isn't the case, especially because of the medical part of it. Just twins have so much more risk and um, these like daily costs of a NICU. Right. Are, are insane. I mean, and it's so funny because a lot of times we don't realize it because <laughs> we have insurance. And so, you know, we don't understand that that's really how much, you know, on the domestic side of things, how much it truly does cost to have a baby in the NICU. Um, you know, one of the things that is just so interesting with, with the intended parents when, when you're having these discussions with them is that they, they will ask you, well, can I just, you know, I could just do another journey. And the reality is with the cost of what a NICU stay is, yeah, you can do another journey and you could do a journey side by side. I mean, you could get two surrogates side by side and do a journey. And we've had a couple intended parents do that where they had two surrogates, they implanted one embryo in each surrogate and they had singletons born within a couple of weeks of each other. I don't know what they're going to do about birthdays, but you know, that's a that's something different, but the reality is that, yeah, for what it costs for a child to be in the NICU, you can do another journey and you will have two babies and you'll have two healthy babies and you hopefully won't be in a position where, you know, you have medical expenses that you cannot afford at that point in time. So are there insurances that are possible, like through the Lloyds of London, things like that for those international there are. There are a couple insurances that are available. There um there definitely is a Lloyds of London market for them. Their singleton twins can be purchased. It has to be done early on um, because it is a medically underwritten plan. So the longer that somebody waits or if they're waiting to see if there's a complication, then the insurance company isn't going to offer insurance to a pregnancy where there's a complication. They're, they're not going to assume that type of risk. So it is better if you're going to do that to start you know, thinking about it early on and getting it in place by about the 10th to 12th week of gestation is the ideal time frame. 
Um, so yeah. I assume you've seen some deny or not be underwritten then? I did. Yeah. The case that we're working on right now where it's the 400, you know, 426, I think thousand dollars. Um, that was one that wasn't approved by insurance. And the reason it wasn't approved by insurance was that it was a, uh, it was twins who were sharing a sack. And so what had happened is they had actually implanted one, not even implanted two, and the, it split and, and didn't split sacks, but actually both babies are in the same sack. And there is something called twin-to-twin transfer syndrome, which basically what happens is that a twin um, overpowers the other, the other twin and can take all the nutrients from that twin. And so it causes preterm labor. It can cause um, one of the babies to pass earlier on. And so when that risk is there, the insurance company won't write it. And unfortunately, it didn't matter how far along somebody got into a pregnancy, the risk is actually present until birth and even after birth. So it was one of those you know, anomalies, to be perfectly honest. And unfortunately, they did. They came to us to get insurance. We went through the whole insurance system. But because of the, the single sack the insurance company said no. We had another one that um, at 26 weeks. Were, were those babies okay? I, I mean, they're doing great now. They are doing. They are doing great now. They are. They're thriving and they're, they're gaining weight and they're actually um, being dropped down to a level two NICU tomorrow. And then they're Yay. going to. Yeah, I know. And they're and they're going to be working on. Is one a lot healthier than the other? What because of that situation? Yeah. So, um, baby, baby, a (laughs) baby, a was a little underweight, um, versus baby B the, one of the good, one of the things with the twin to twin transfer syndrome is that if they can see that it's happening, they, they, a lot of times will actually induce labor and have them and have the babies born earlier because they are, they have more chance of survival outside of the womb than they do inside. And so that's basically what had happened was that they realized that the the one of the babies was no longer gaining weight and that their, their size was no longer measuring and increasing. And so they had um, put her on to hospitalized bed rest to monitor it and then had actually had to induce her to get the babies out so that they could be outside of the womb and then again, you know, getting the nutrients they both needed. But yes, they are, they are doing, they're doing great. And I actually, I'm talking to the intended mother a little later today. Um, it's, yeah, it's, you know, yeah, yeah. So it's been, it's been good in the sense that the babies are healthy and that's, you know, at the end of the day, yes, we can talk about financial costs and risks and everything like that. But at the end of the day, she has two healthy who will be healthy babies. And that's, that's what this is for, right? That's why, that's why we're in this, end. that's why we're here. That's why this field is here to help build those families. So, um, so the, the sad part on the other side of that is that sometimes things are not always happy. And one of the other things that you guys cover is life insurance. So, um, I'm sure there have to be some unhappy stories in regards to life insurance. Yeah, there are. Um, we have we've had two instances where one as recent actually as a month ago, and another one that happened about two years ago at this point. Um, we've had surrogates pass, and that, and you know, that is something. Of course, we never we never hope for, we never wish for, and we goodness gracious never think is going to happen. But the reality is, it does. And so, you know, one of something that is really great about every contract is that it does have a life insurance policy inside that contract. And with the life insurance policies, you know, they, the surrogate that passed two years ago, she actually passed after the birth. So she had delivered twins and had complications during birth. Um, they could not, they could not get her to stop bleeding. They did blood transfusions. And then unfortunately it was too much on her heart. And so she did go into cardiac arrest and she she did pass. Um, 
with that, you know, the, the intended parents were really great throughout the process. Um, they were there every single day, even though they had their babies, they were very supportive to the family. The insurance policy that they had, you know, had purchased for her, um, the insurance company paid out in about three weeks on the insurance policy. And so one of the good things with that was that just to know that the insurance companies that we're using are going to do what they say they're going to do. And you know, pay out when they need to pay out. And and one of the things that we did as a company was that we called, we called all the insurance companies that she had policies through and changed, you know, changed the contact person around and made sure that no bills were going to go to her house anymore and tried to take care of it in that manner so that there is um, less that, you know, the family has to deal with. Because I think there's, there's a lot of the aftermath of things that, you know, it's not, it's not just that, but it's, you know, mail coming to the door, Hey, this premium needs to get paid. And, and so those are things that we kind of took on and said, okay, look, we'll handle this side of things. We'll get this all taken care of. We'll deal with the insurance companies, you know, and get, and make sure that this isn't a problem. And again, deal with the life insurance company to make sure that the payouts happen in the manner that they needed to happen. And like I said, the insurance company was wonderful. Um, so that was really positive for, for that aspect of things. And the, the other one that we had was, oh my goodness, it was, you know, a month ago and she got, they were in contract phases. So they, or she just been medically cleared and they were heading into contract phases and she got the flu, um, and just complications of the flu and had passed away. So it wasn't even a complication of pregnancy or anything having to do with that, but just again, you know, entering into the process and then, you know, the intended parent side of having, matched in legal fees and, you know, medical fees and things of that nature, that hopefully if there is an insurance policy in place, the intended parent, if there's a passing, can recoup some of that money. Yeah. And Sarah, that was a really, these are so depressing stories, but I know from talking to you that you love your job. Um, and I forgot to ask you towards the beginning, how you, how you got into this and why you, why you do it and why you like it. I love insurance. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh God, I'm right there with you. I love insurance. <laughs> no, um, so <laughs> that's, that's not true. Um, so basically, my my background was in education. So I had gone to school, got my degree in um, multiple subject credential, and then had my specialty in mathematics. And I went into to teach school, taught fifth grade. I loved it. They smell. Um, so that was really fun. Had a lot. They do. Fifth graders smell. I'll just tell you that. Um, but My daughter is just barely older than that. And I'll tell you what, we've just gotten past the other side of that stinky phase. And I'm like, oh. Oh my oh. gosh. It's horrible. I used to buy little deodorants and stick them in my desk and be like, look, here, yes. this needs to happen. Um, and and I, was in, I was in Texas at the time. And so, you know, right. the summers in Texas with the humidity, it was fun. No, anyway. You don't do that for your insurance coworkers now? No, I, you know, sometimes I do. Sometimes I'm like, hey, look, <laughs> we need to have a talk. No, I don't do that. <laughs> but so I, um, I was teaching and I actually really, I really enjoyed it. But I also had felt like I wanted to try something different. And at the time I was in my mid twenties and I was like, you know what, I'm going to try something different and see. And then I can always, I can always go back to teaching. And so I left and went into the wonderful world of business and was actually a logistics manager for a third party shipping company. So again, really interesting as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I liked working with numbers and I liked working with clients. And then I was approached by 
Virginia to help out a little bit for her company, which at the time actually wasn't even Art Risk. It was the resource group and said, okay, but I don't like insurance. And, and for so, listeners, that's Virginia Hart, who Virginia is Hart, the for everybody. owner and Art Risk <laughs> yes. Solutions. Yes. And so I said, I don't, I don't like insurance. And I don't want to do this. And I find it boring. And <laughs> she said, okay, fine. <laughs> Just 10 hours a week. I said, okay, great. Um, so I did that. And then within the first year was up to 40 hours a week, ended up moving. I'm impressed that she hired you. If during the interview, you're like, I don't want to do this. It's boring. (laughs) Right. I appreciate your honesty. Yeah. Yeah. I (laughs) pretty much. Well, and then at the time it was that she needed help in a specific area and it was basically to tide her over until she had found a full-time employee. And, um, I ended up, I ended up liking it. I ended up enjoying talking to the insurance companies. I, I am an arguer at heart. And so, <laughs> so for me, it oh, was I another it, profession that could be a fit. <laughs> Yay, lawyers. I know. I, I, it's so funny. I've actually like thought about it so many times, but my, again, my stepdad's a lawyer and every, every time he's like, I'm just writing this brief. I'm like, no, that's going to be a no for me. I don't, I'm not, right. I'm not a it's huge not writer. True. Yeah. Just, yeah, just yeah. Um, writing things. Right. So I, anyways, I ended up doing it about 40 hours a week at that point in time, ended up really liking it, went back and got my licensing and then, um, kind of it grew from there. I enjoyed the business aspect of it and being able to put my mind to it and figure out how we can better serve the assisted reproductive technology community and what we can present. And so we started working on growing the business and getting more products on the book so that, you know, taking a look at the the legal side of things, the contract and seeing where there were holes and how could we cover those holes. And so that's, that ended up being really fun. And now I've been here for seven years and the little, the little three person company that I joined is now 20 people. So, I mean, it's, Yeah, it's been fun. It's been fun to be a part of it and and I enjoy it and it is a puzzle. It's for so like my math background, that's that's why I really like it. It's people and it's a puzzle and I get to help hopefully. <laughs> and during open enrollment, you have to work a few it's like 45 hours a week, 46, a few extra. You're funny. You're funny. Um, <laughs> it's like your tax season. <laughs> it's like our tax season. Yeah, it's exactly like our tax season. Um I honestly we're we're 80 to 100 hours a week. Do you just have a mattress in the office? Is that? I have a couch. <laughs> I, I do. I legitimately have a couch here. I, I live two minutes from the office. So I actually moved two minutes from the office because I was living 45 minutes away and it, it was too much. I was here too much. And, you know, I, I figured, you know, I, I like the area, so I might as well move closer to it. So that was kind of a little bit of a godsend to be to be a lot closer this year. But yeah, it's um, it's crazy, and it's not just me. I mean, it's not me who's working the hundred hours. It's our entire our entire office. You know, I do part of my job is to do payroll and to put everything in. And when you see the hours, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm, you know, it's like you want to give everybody a break. You know, trying. So we we did. We hired a lot of part time people this year to try and minimize the amount of hours that people had to work. And and gosh, I mean, I couldn't say enough great, fantastic things about our staff in terms of really just putting the pedal to the metal and you know, making sure everything got done. It's insane. We, we we can't either. I mean, honestly, you guys are awesome. So do you have a favorite insurance company? Do you have like a shout out for your favorite insurance? <laughs> well, okay. So here's the thing. I I mean, I do, but like if I don't do a shout out to one insurance company, I feel like they'll be really mad. <laughs> yeah, so that's do, fair. That's, that's okay fair. though. I'll do a shout out. I don't mind doing a shout out. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> 
Or you can. Either way. Now, now I'm curious. Oh, okay. I know. Like, who is it? Who is it? Um, so, I mean, my, I think my favorite insurance company, just because of the friendliness towards surrogacy, has been Blue Cross Blue Shield. Um, yay, Blue Cross Blue Shield. Yay. Yeah. And, and in, in many states. And and just so everybody knows, Blue Cross Blue Shield is not one company. They're, they're independently owned <laughs> companies within different states. So it is not just... Um, one company, it's actually been as a whole, they've been just, they've been great to work with and especially on the customer service side of things. So when things do go a little bit haywire, they've been, they've got, you know, they've got their processes and procedures. And as long as you follow with them and, and stay up to date, they're, they're good to work with. So I, I appreciate that on the specialty insurance side, um, universal family, because I think that they are always looking to try and make sure that they have the most concrete and most expensive products that they can offer for the industry as well and, and really do have their heart in the game, which I, which I appreciate. That's great. Yeah. Those are my well, shout outs. Appreciate <laughs> everything. You, I, I won't ask you your least favorite. I'll, I'll save you from that. Um, no, we won't be doing that one. Mm, no. no. <laughs> I don't want to bad mouth anybody that we're working with. <laughs> well, we appreciate good. everything that you do to help, to help um, people going through this as gestational carriers or as intended parents or donors it's such an important part, even though it's not a part anyone really wants to think about or deal with. I mean, the ultrasounds are fun to see. No one wants to think about, oh, what's my insurance policy? But, um, right, but right. Is it going to cover this ultrasound? It's important, <laughs> and we think you guys do a great job and appreciate you always being a great resource. Well, thank you. And I and I so appreciate you guys having me on and being able to talk about it and get, get a, hopefully a different perspective on insurance <laughs> out there. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Lesson of the day, um, even if you are not like Sarah or Jennifer and love insurance, hopefully you've picked up that insurance is actually really important. And even for those of us like me who want to bury our head in the stand and make someone else think about it, it is very important to to actually do the exercise, go through it, think about it. And if you want to, to try to ignore it, then you hire um, amazing professionals like Sarah or Arvis Solutions to, uh, to do the heavy lifting for you. Yeah, because they really think it's fun, you know. Come on. <laughs> let, let the people who think something is fun do the hard work, right? Um, hey, so everybody out there, we really appreciate that you are listening to us. Uh, we have a, a really phenomenal audience, you know, group really starting up out there. And we really would like to encourage you, though, to please, please review us on iTunes. Um, it really helps us over there. They they take a lot of those weird things and have their little data and they love numbers and data more than insurance people do. So they really want us to be reviewed on iTunes. So please do that for <laughs> us. And, um, a huge, huge thank you as always to Chris at work at bird studios and to our mentors that have come before us and have really helped us out. So we are very thankful that you are with us and, uh, thanks so much for listening. Bye.